I want to tell you about a guy named August Landmesser. August Landmesser was a German who lived at the height of Hitler's reign. And what I love about August Landmesser is he is truly a hero. You see, Hitler came to his town one time and everyone was gathered and everyone was giving him the Heil Hitler sign, giving allegiance to Hitler, except August Landmesser. Maybe you've seen the picture before, but these are everyone gathered together, putting their arm up in solidarity to this horrible, horrible man, except for August Landmesser, who's just sitting there because he will not give up who he is or compromise his values or beliefs because of somebody else. Now he was married to Irma Eckler, who was a Jew. And obviously back then it was uh, illegal to be married to a Jew, especially if you were a German. And so sadly, Irma, she was taken to a concentration camp and she was killed. Because of him being married to a Jew and not giving his allegiance to Hitler, he was forced into prison and then forced into military duty where August Landmesser died on the battlefield. But he died with his integrity. He died knowing that he stood up and stood firm for who he was and what he valued and what he believed. Later, in the 1970s, Keith Green, he came out with an album called No Compromise. And that album is based upon Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin in the book of Esther. Esther was the queen and she had a lot of power. And Mordecai, he had a choice. He could bow down to this king's right-hand man named Haman, or he also could stand firm in his beliefs, knowing that it could cost him his life. And here's what happens to Mordecai. It should just say Esther 3.2. It's not 3.2 through 4. But all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded it. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show respect to him. Would you be known as an August or a Mordecai? Could people, when they are around you, say, no matter the cost, no matter what other people thought, no matter what other people did, my friend, or my mom, or my neighbor, or my coworker, she or he stood firm. It didn't matter what it cost. It didn't matter what they had to go through. They were true to what they believed. They were true to themselves. They resisted all that the world could throw at them. Could that be said of you and me? Think about it just in your daily lives. I'm not talking here because all of us can act that way. I'm talking about on a Friday night. I'm talking about when you're on your phone. I'm talking about when you're alone with your friends. I'm talking about when it's just you at your house. I'm talking about all of those things. Are you standing firm and resisting what the world can throw at you? Or are you and I just like everybody else? You see, when I look at Revelation 17 and 18, I think of August. I think of Mordecai. I think of those Christ followers who are standing firm in their faith no matter what it costs them. Because what we're about to see in Revelation 17 and 18 is evil in such a way that it shows us the powers of darkness in this world that you and I can't even imagine. In fact, when John receives this apocalyptic vision 
and he sees what kind of this world and the evil behind the world is described as. It's provocative to say the least. If you don't believe me, look at the verse 1 in Revelation chapter 17. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The great prostitute. It's how the world is described. It will draw you in and maybe give you what you think it will give you, but it will always take from you. That's why he calls it the great prostitute. And that's how the world is described here. So think about it. Are you standing firm? Are you resisting this attraction that can come from the great prostitute? I love how it goes on in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. The great prostitute is actually describing Babylon. Babylon is the central location of evil and where the world is really coming to a head. And it says this about Babylon. A, mystery, a mystery, mysterious name was written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. And if you know anything about this word Babylon and where it comes from, it actually comes from the word Babel. And that's where we get the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. If you're familiar with scripture, it's a fascinating story of how all of humanity at that point came together to build a tower as tall as they could. It says, to the heavens. Why were they doing that? Did they want a place to live or did they want to uh, work on their construction and architectural skills? No, they built that because it was a sign to God that they didn't need him. It was a sign of God that they didn't want his rule. They didn't want his reign. They wanted to control everything. It was a message to God saying, we're in charge. We don't want you to be in charge. And that's why it's called the great prostitute. Because it represents the world's systems, the world's politics, the world's way. In such a way that it's resistant, that it pushes back against the kingdom. Or as Dr. Bill Mounts puts it, the prostitute is a great system of godlessness that leads people away from the worship of God and to their own destruction. Why do we talk about people like August and Mordecai? Because they had to resist, resist fitting in, resist going down the same path as everybody else. And in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, it is going to show us what you and I must do in order to resist this system that's at play, that's behind the scenes, that's trying to draw you and I away from God. And it's seductive, and it's attractive, and it will woo us, but it will spit us out when it gets us. See, that's why Jesus, as he's about to be arrested, he is praying for us in the garden. And right before he's arrested and brutally murdered, he's praying for his followers. He's praying for what's to come. And of all the things that Jesus could pray, he prays this for his followers. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. What Jesus is saying is, look, don't take them out of the world, but let them be in the world. Let them be a light. Let them shine the light that will hopefully extinguish the darkness. And we're called to do that. We're called to transform. We're called to redeem. We're called to partner with Jesus himself to save the world unto himself. So Jesus says, keep them in the world to do that. That's our mission as Christ followers. But keep them safe. 
He's saying, look, the evil one is going to throw the kitchen sink at the Christ followers. He will do whatever it takes. And you're going to see that in 17, 18. He will do whatever it takes, covertly and overtly, to draw us in. Jesus is saying, live in the world, but do not let the world live in you. And for you and I today, all I want you to ask yourself is, am I like Mordecai? Am I like August, who resisted, no matter the cost, or have I given myself to the world and not even known it? So get ready. We're going to jump into our first point today. And this is actually from Daniel Aiken, wrote a great commentary on Revelation And he says that you have to be careful because the world is seductive. It will attract you. It is like a magnet to our souls. It is going to bring us in. And oftentimes, we don't even know it. It's interesting how they describe what this great prostitute looks like, what Babylon looks like. In verse 4, it says, The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing, And beautiful jewelry made out of gold and precious gems and pearls. Look how beautiful that sounds. In fact, when it says the woman wore purple, back in that day, purple dye was a significant thing. It was a representative of those who had wealth. And oftentimes people that had wealth held that over people. And this is exactly what's happening. It is this personification of everything is beautiful. They have everything they need. They have a lot of money. It draws people to it. It's attractive. But listen how it goes on. In her hand, she held this gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. Think about it this way. On the outside, she's holding this gold cup. It is just beautiful. But as you get closer, you look inside and it says it's full of obscenities and impurities. Think about when Jesus was on the scene and he talked about some of the religious leaders of the day. And he would describe them like this. On the outside, man, they prayed. They knew scripture. They gave. They did all of these things. But on the inside, they were dead to God. And that's what's scary about this. Everything on the outside, the wealth, the prominence, the beauty, everything looked good. And people were attracted to it until you got up close and you actually saw what was inside. And it was decay and evil and death itself. And you and I may say, yeah, no, I know. I see that in the world. We don't have to go far to see the immorality in the world and all of the impurities in the world. And even though it looks good on the outside, we know on the inside it'll swallow us up. But if we're not careful, any of us, I don't care how firm your faith is, I don't care how long you follow Jesus, I don't care if you read the Bible every day, all of us, if we're not careful, can fall prey to the world. How do I know that? Because one of Jesus' closest friends did it. One of Jesus' own followers was duped by it. Who is that? John. The one who received this letter. The one who, received, who wrote the letter, who received this vision. Look what happens here in verse 6 and 7. I could see she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who are witnesses for Jesus. She's ruthless. She's ruthless. She's out for blood, literally. And then John said, I stared at her in complete, complete amazement. He was in 
awe of it. He was drawn to it. He was attracted by it. The beauty, the gold, the purple dye, everything was so beautiful to the point the angel said, why are you so amazed? I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast and the seven heads and the ten horns on which she sits. It doesn't look like it just looking at the text of this, but you dig deeper in it, it showed that John was like, oh my goodness. Like, I, I know Jesus. Obviously, I, I was in his inner circle. He was in the inner circle of three. Man, this is pretty attractive. This is pretty beautiful. And the angel's like, John, wake up. Don't you dare let yourself go down that path. If John could be duped, and an angel had to come around and say, wake up, maybe you and I need to hear that same message today. Maybe Jesus is kindly saying to you, not to berate you or make you feel guilty, but out of love saying, wake up. What are you doing? You're being attracted by something that looks really good on the outside, but on the inside, it will tear you apart. In fact, if you're going to try to live for Jesus and you're going to try to also live for the world, it can't work. It won't work. In fact, if you want to choose between the world and Jesus and you're trying to do both, you have chosen the world. How do I know that? Well, that's what Jesus says. Matthew 6, 24. No one, no one can serve two masters. No one can bow down to two things. No one can worship two things. No one can give their whole allegiance to two things. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. And you may say, no, no, no. I love Jesus and I love the world too. I actually love both. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't. You may think that, but your soul is literally hating me and turning its back on me because you can't have it both ways. And there is decay happening in your heart and in your soul if you're not careful. And then he goes on to say and gives this example. You can't serve God and be enslaved to money. Let's use this example for a moment. What Jesus doesn't say is you cannot serve God and have money. It's okay to have money. If you have a bank account, if you have a checking account and a savings account, if you have investments, those things are actually good. In fact, they're biblical. It's okay to save. It's okay to invest. So the problem is, isn't having money. The problem is, is when money has us. If anything has us, then we are done for. That's why Jesus says, I can either have you or something else can have you, but you can't have it both ways. And especially in our Western world, living in America, it is really easy to try to do both. To try to live a Sunday life and then a Monday through Saturday life. To say, I love Jesus, but I love money. I love Jesus, but I love this and that. What has your heart? Where is your affections going towards? Does Jesus have you or does money have you? Does Jesus have you or does sex have you? Does Jesus have you or does food have you? Does Jesus have you or does your body image have you? Does Jesus have you or does social media have you? Does Jesus have you or do other people have you? You can't have it both ways. And the problem is, once we figure it out, it's too late. It doesn't mean that you and I can't come back from that 
always we can. But when we figure it out, oh man, I've gone in both directions, I can tell you that something is changed in you or it's affecting your spiritual life, whether you recognize it or not. I mean, think of it this way. Of all the things that God could call Babylon, which represents the world, which represents this evil, he calls it a great prostitute. What does a prostitute do? It promises love and intimacy, but then it leaves you high and dry. You and I find our worth, our value, our love and intimacy in something else other than God. We go to it and then it leaves us. It takes from us. That's the reason why a lot of people come to church and they say they love Jesus and they read the Bible and they pray, but they're miserable. Because Jesus doesn't have us. Something else does. This morning, if you're like John and you were amazed by the world and the angel had to say, John, get your eyes off of that. Get it back onto Jesus. Is Jesus saying the same thing to you today? Get your eyes off of what the world has to offer because it's going to give you something that you really don't want in the end. Give it to me. So I want to ask you two questions this morning. And as I do, I want to invite Meg Ravis out. She wrote this song a couple weeks ago and I love when she says, Eric, I wrote this new song, come listen to it. And she's so humble. She's not bragging about it. She really wants feedback. And I was literally in her office and she stopped playing the song. And I said, Meg, were you like stalking me this week? Because, or a camera in my office, were you, Meg? You weren't doing that, were you? Okay. (laughs) She wrote this song. I go, Meg, this is exactly what we're going to be teaching on in Revelation 17. How Jesus is the better one. And oftentimes our hearts forget that. So as you listen to this song, the words will be on the screen. I just ask you just to follow along. You don't have to sing it. Let Meg sing it over you today and reflect. And as you do, ask yourself two questions. Is my ultimate hope in the world to come? Or is it what I am grasping onto right now? And is Jesus my master? Is he what I worship? Or am I worshiping or am I mastered by something else that is fleeting, will never deliver on its promises? and gold sweeter in hiding for all is mine that he gave I've been made new and my flesh rebels again Better in mine, better in fame. You satisfy me like. 
Satisfy me like nothing else can. You may say, Oh, we're done early. Nope, we're going to keep going. <laughs> we will be done on time, though. But thank you, Meg. Uh, what a great challenge. What is the far better thing? Jesus or what the world can offer us. It will attract you. It will draw you in, but it will spit you out. But Jesus promises to never do that. Today may be the day where you and I make that change for good, saying, I want to live for Jesus. Now, I wish the, the rest of Revelation 17 was that easy, that we could just breeze through it. But let me tell you, uh, the angel even tells John not so fast. In fact, in verse nine, it says this. This calls for a man of understanding. The angel's like, look, what you're about to see who knows what it really means? <laughs> and that's the thing about Revelation. There's so much symbolism and so many things that we're trying to interpret. And so as we look at the rest of chapter 17 together, I want to borrow from Chuck Swindoll. He is a great teacher, great preacher, way smarter than me. And as I looked at how he interpreted this, I wanted to combine my thoughts with his 
and look at how we can understand chapter 17. And I'm going to walk through it pretty quickly. And so if you need a copy of what I'm going to put on the screen, it's found in the Revelation uh, commentary and Daniel Aiken's commentary. Uh, We have that available on our website if you want to check that out. But I'm going to walk through it. But what I want you to understand is two things. One, evil and what's behind the world, what's controlling the world is far more powerful than you and I can imagine. And in chapter 17, we're going to see it all come to a head. But what's so amazing is that the world may put up a vicious fight, and it's going to. It is going to come after you. But I'm going to show you in the end, Jesus, Jesus is victorious. If we remain firm and stand firm, even when the enemy is coming at us in all different ways, you and I will be victorious with Jesus. So again, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, but here's what chapter 17 means. I'm going to give you what the symbolism is, in parentheses, the text in chapter 17, and I'm just going to read what it means. So we already talked about the great prostitute. In addition to its desire to seduce us, which we looked at, it's also the source of all false economies, governments, and religions that draw its inspiration from pride and self-sufficiency. Many waters that are described in these verses are actually the nations and people groups around the world under the influence of this false system where the beast is leading, which of course is Satan. He is the Antichrist, who is the imitation of Jesus. He is the ruler of the worldwide empire and an object of an anti-God worship. That's what he is called to do. He is leading the world in such a way that leads people away from God. We see that then, we see that now. Seven heads in these few verses, though it's much debated, uh, Swindoll, and I believe this too, it's the seven world empires that could stand for the world empires in opposition to God and his people, from Egypt to Assyria, Babylon, Medo, uh, Persia, and Greece, and Rome, and the Antichrist Empire, all of those that are against what God is trying to do through enacting his kingdom on earth. Seven mountains, the ancient Rome is built on seven hills. It came to represent the city of man in contrast to the city of God. The eighth king is the Antichrist, who is the one of the preceding kings. And finally, ten horns that we see in these three verses are the ten political powers that will unite to empower the Antichrist, turning authority over to him. This isn't to scare you, but this is to show you everything, everything that's against God and against his people. And we see that in the end in Revelation 17. And we'll see in Revelation 18 how this empire of Babylon ends up falling. But we see before it falls, it's a big deal. And it's going to throw the kitchen sink at us Christ followers and Jesus himself. We shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? I mean, in Ephesians chapter 6, we read this. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. By the way, your spouse, your boss, other people that you know of, people in this world, they're not your enemy. Though we treat them like our enemy, they're not our enemy. Here's really what the enemy, it's behind the scenes. It's these evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, spoiler alert, after Revelation October, we're gonna walk through the whole book of Ephesians, so we'll cover more of this then. But for now, what you and I see isn't the enemy, but it's what's behind the scenes that ends up influencing us in a really powerful way. Whether that's our political system that is meant to detract us from God's reign. And I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat. I'm talking about the world's political system 
It's found in one person or a group of people that should be leading us when really God should be. He's on the throne. But oftentimes it's the political powers that have sway in our lives and sway over people and they can abuse that power. That's behind the scenes working. Or the systems in this world that are at play to downplay God's goodness and downplay God's glory. Or like we've seen the whole time, the temptations that God is, or that Jesus will help us overcome that, but Satan is going to throw everything at you. C.S. Lewis says, badness is just spoiled goodness. Anything that he can tempt you with that is good, he wants you to take the bait and find it in the creation instead of the creator. These are the ways that Satan is at play now in this world. And we'll see that again in Revelation 17 in the biggest way. But what does this mean? I mean, that's a huge, huge opponent. But I just love how Revelation 17, 13 through 14 ends. And we'll end like this. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb. But. Every time you see a but in Scripture, oftentimes that's a signal of grace. But, though the war will happen, the Lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And his called and chosen and faithful nuns will be with him. Does that not fire you up this morning? That the world with Satan at the helm is going to throw everything at you. And it's going to look like he is victorious and he will win a battle or two. But Jesus and us, we win the war. And until then, you and I have a choice. We can give in to the great prostitute, just like many of our family members and friends and even Christ followers do. We can give in to the political powers and the systems of this world, or we can be like August, who when everyone did this, he did this. Or in Mordecai, when everyone bowed down, he stood firm. You and I can be either be true to Jesus and true to what we believe and true to who we are or we can cave and bend the knee. What choice will you make? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we recommit ourselves to you. Just like Meg saying, you are the far better thing. I just pray, Lord, for those today who need to hear from Jesus and say, what are you doing? Stop looking at that. It looks beautiful on the inside, but on the... On the, or on the outside, but on the inside. It's full of impurities, full of powerful ways to take us down. May we turn our gaze off of the world and everything behind it and turn it back on Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray in your name. Amen. Stand with me and let's finish how we have finished every week in Revelation by saying this benediction verse out loud. Grace and peace to you, from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Amen. See you later.